Welcome to the Light Shine Church Sermon Podcast. I'm organizing pastor Rob Douglas, and I'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen to our weekly message. Well, this morning, we start again at the very beginning of the narrative story of our scriptures for our second year in working through what is called the narrative lectionary. All right, so we're gonna throw out a question to get this party started. It should be on the screen. And this is not a joke. Normally these set up like a joke. What do Adam and Eve and modern science have in common? All right, so this was a question that I thought about when I read today's text. Um, I don't know if anyone would even have any guesses on a question like this, but here's, here's what I came up with when I read today's story. Both modern science and Adam and Eve both would like to play at being God. Both are interested in making a serious bid to abolish death. Now, in one of the most interesting books I've read in recent years, it was called Homo Deus, or Man-God. Renowned historian Noah Yuval Harari made the case that humans in the 21st century are making a serious run at immortality. He says that modern science and modern culture only think of death as a technical problem to be solved because most humans die as a result of some technical glitch. The heart stops pumping, fat clogs the arteries, cancer cells spread, germs multiply. And so he says that every technical problem, of course, has a technical solution. He writes this. This is really fascinating. He's not super friendly toward people of faith, as you'll hear from this next quote. But he writes, we don't need to wait for the second coming in order to overcome death. A couple of geeks in a lab can do it. Now that may not exactly be theologically correct, but it is pretty funny. Death used to be the specialty of theologians and pastors, but that has now shifted toward engineers. An increasing number of scientists and thinkers today are speaking openly about the quest for immortality. Google even started a subcompany called Calico, whose mission is simply to, this is a quote, solve death. PayPal uh, co-founder Peter Thiel has said that he aims to live forever. The war against death is quickly becoming the flagship project of the 21st century. Now, these are really ambitious goals. And anyone who knows me, by the way, the little caveat is that I'm not anti-science. Um, I live with a scientist. But I do think this is a fun way to get our minds inside the story that we're going to look at. These ambitious goals that I've just been talking about are shared, by the way, by our first human parents, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve too wanted to become some sort of a homo deus. They too wanted to gain godlike wisdom. They wanted to cheat death and live forever and their story that we find in Genesis will teach us of their failed experiment. The story of Adam and Eve is probably the most famous story in Genesis, maybe in the whole Hebrew Bible. 
And like any great story, it seeks to teach us not just what happened once upon a time in a faraway garden, but rather its purpose is that it continues to shape and tell us what happens in the here and now. Reading this story again, I have been deeply moved and inspired by it, and I hope that your soul will be stirred by this story as well. Will you join me in prayer? God, you formed us from the dust of the earth and breathed into us the breath of life. And so, God, we approach your word with a posture of humility. By the same spirit that hovered over the waters of creation, lead us, teach us, and guide us to know you, ourselves, and each other more fully. Amen. Here's our reading for today from Genesis 2, 4 to 7, 15 to 17, and 3, 1 to 8. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. And there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, you see, we skipped over some stuff. Here is Eve. He said to Eve, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 each tell a slightly different creation story. If you've remembered that there are actually two creation stories in the Bible, not just one. And so Genesis 1 gives us this kind of view from 30,000 feet. It reminds us that we're 
all created in the image of God. Well, Genesis 2 gives us more of a bird's eye view, a little bit closer to the earth. It reminds us that we're not only made in the image of God, but that we're made of the dust of the earth. We're both capable of soaring to great heights and sinking to these unspeakable lows. This is part of what it means to be human. And it's fascinating that the earth's flourishing, it says, needs two things to happen. First, it needs God to produce the rain and to make things grow. But the second thing it needs is it needs human beings in order to flourish. It needs humans to work and to till the ground. The flourishing of the earth will require both God and humanity working together. Even before we meet the first human, he's already defined by his work. The story conveys this universal truth that we humans are less the rulers of everything and are more, in fact, servants of the earth because no matter how hard we try, we cannot make it rain and we cannot make things grow. And so in this story, there's this play on words in the Hebrew with the creation of Adam. The Lord formed Adam, meaning human being, from the dust of the Adama, meaning earth or ground. And so Adam is earthy. He's created from the earth, for the earth. He's not alienated from creation. As a matter of fact, all living creatures, all of them in the Bible are called the same thing, nefesh hayah. We are all created from the earth. And so God plants this beautiful garden with beautiful trees and plenty of delicious food. And he sticks Adam right in the middle of it saying that the destiny of the human being is to live in this world of God's making in relationship with God, in relationship with the other creatures found there and in relation with each other. Now, how many of us have ever experienced the delight of planting a garden or at least spending some quality time in one? Just yesterday, Katie and I spent half a day working in our garden, and I often wonder why I find it so therapeutic to be outside, why my mind stops racing, why my anxiety levels dissipate when I'm working in the garden. And I wonder now if it's because at some level I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, joining Adam in the vocation of caring for God's garden. We see that Adam is content. He's experiencing the goodness of being alive in this generous and bountiful garden. And he's given these expansive gifts. Every tree, every tree but one is for his use. It was as if like I was thinking about it in terms of the things I have lying around in my kitchen. I'm a huge fan of I have almonds, cashews, peanuts, and some beef jerky, right? Those might be my top snacks I have in the kitchen right now. It's as if we put those four things right in front of me and said, all of them but the beef jerky are, are for your use. That's some pretty, good, some pretty good gifts. Three of those four things, I like it, right? But don't touch the one thing. You can have it all except for that. And so Adam is to work the land. He's to till it. He's to care for it. He's to serve it. 
Adam is given the job of chief groundskeeper of God's garden. Any Caddyshack fans here? One of my all-time favorite movies, he's like the Bill Murray of Eden. He's not, and this is really important, he's not the exploiter, he's not the colonizer, he's not the dominator or ruler over the earth that so many Christians have mistakenly ascribed to him. His work that was given to him is a gift from God, not a punishment. And so to solve the problem of loneliness, we skipped over the section of the creation of Eve. God creates for Adam a suitable partner. Now, as awesome as the animals were, they weren't suitable partners for Adam. And so Eve is given the same job as Adam. She's to help him till the ground. She's to help him tend the garden. And despite, again, what some segments of Christianity have taught, Eve is not created a subordinate to Adam. The English word helper does come with some baggage. I've dealt with this in detail in other places and really just don't have the time to spend on it here today. But what the Hebrew conveys is a non-hierarchical picture of two human partners serving the garden together, serving the very ground from which they came. Now with the talking serpent, things do get a little strange. We have the Bible's first quoted conversation and the Bible's first question. And it is important just to say right here that Satan, by the way, is never mentioned in this story. This insertion took place much later on. But here's what the serpent does. It asks a question. And the serpent's question, the first recorded conversation in the Bible says, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden. Now, serpents play a big role in many of the myths of the ancient Near East, but there's a detail from this story that I think is important here. God had actually given Adam the power to name the animals, and the Hebrew word for serpent means shiny and enchanting. And I think this is important not only for the story that we're looking at, but important to ourselves today. Shiny and enchanting. This is the name that Adam himself had given to the serpent. And so the serpent is both attractive and crafty. Its slick speech and beauty tries to fool us of its dangerous intentions. And with the serpent's probing question, Eve is awakened to her own autonomy. She's opened up to new possibilities. She realizes that she now has choice, free choice. She's free. She's free to choose God, and she's also free to disobey. And now, before we go making the mistake that many have made in blaming Eve for the fall of humanity, please know that silent and complicit Adam is standing right next to her during this conversation, and he never once objected. Now, it's fascinating that the serpent doesn't exactly lie, but it also doesn't tell the whole truth. His words are slightly off. It's deceitful speech that calls God out to be a liar. And so Eve believes that she will die if she so much as touches the forbidden tree. But the crafty serpent says something different. Don't worry. 
you'll be fine. In fact, you will be new and improved. You'll become like God. You'll be given wisdom. You'll know right from wrong, good from evil, and perhaps maybe immune from death itself. Now, humanity's fall is normally described as a downward fall. This is really an upward fall. It's trying to be like God that they're ascending upward. They're reaching upward towards something the created beings were never meant to attain. And so Eve sees that the tree is beautiful, that has delicious fruit for eating. She exercises her newfound freedom and in this profound act of disobedience to God, she takes a bite and then she passes the dreaded tomato to Adam and he takes a bite. Now apple is nowhere in the Bible. So since I'm not a tomato fan, I choose to pick the tomato as the fruit uh, in this story, but you can pick whichever one you like the least. Now, this is really interesting. God even verifies the serpent's prediction. They do not die immediately. But what the scripture says is now they realize that they will die as the knowledge of death has entered into their lives for the first time. The eating of this fruit backfires. And so in the quest for immortality, their eyes are now open to their own weakness, their own mortality. In one way, they've become like God. They may be wiser, but in countless other ways, they now realize that they are not God. God clothing them with the fig leaves from the garden may really be a way to describe their shame and their the way they're feeling guilty about their own disobedient actions. They're exposed for who they really were, and God has to cover them up. I was thinking about this. When we sin, when we choose disobedience, do we not also try to do our very best to cover it up at all costs? I want to close with just a couple of thoughts on this incredible story. And the first is that the story of creation and fall doesn't just tell us of what happened once upon a time, but rather what continues to happen today. Now, I spoke about this a little bit last week. It's so easy to point fingers of blame away from ourselves to someone else. The serpent could point blame at God and Adam because it wasn't found to be the suitable partner for the human. Eve could, of course, point the finger of blame at the serpent who tricked her. Adam could point blame at his wife Eve who handed him the fruit to eat. We could choose whoever we want to blame. We could blame them all, which, of course, would be to succumb to exactly what our biblical writers and the spirit that inspired them would implore us not to do. The story, like many from our scriptures, is like a mirror held up in front of us in order to help us see ourselves as we really are, to see our own willful disobedience and the ways in which we get fooled by the shiny and enchanting things of our world. We're all given expansive and numerous gifts beyond our wildest dreams, we 
too have been placed in the most beautiful garden, but were placed here with some caveats. Why? Because not everything that is available to us is good for us. Not everything available to us is good for us. Some things, in fact, may even destroy us. And as conscious creatures who know right from wrong, we are all like our original human parents given the power to choose. And over and over again, like every single person who has gone before us, we sometimes choose poorly. The Apostle Paul summarized this really well in his letter to the Romans when he said this, For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I can relate to Paul's words, and I wonder, can you relate to those words? This is our story too. It's our history, the history of humanity from the first Homo sapiens all the way through to whatever this future Homo Deus might be. We desire to reach beyond our limitations to attain things for which we were not made. Second, the story encourages us to not focus on living forever, but rather focus our attention on living well. This was my biggest learning from studying this story again. The story of the Garden of Eden proclaims that living a human life means living with our own mortality. My favorite author on Genesis, Dr. Leon Cass, he said it like this. He said the story of humanity in the Garden of Eden helps readers on their way to finding the path to a life well lived, using our free choice to make good, life-giving decisions, not only for ourselves, but as Shea was reminding us, for others. The beginning of a remedy is our willingness to recognize our own poor choices and the depths in which we humans are capable of sinking to. And we know that we don't have to look very far around us in the world today to see this happening. Almost daily in our household, one of us will say something like this, what, what is wrong with people? We're just perplexed, blown away, completely mystified by some of the things that we're seeing happening all around us in this world. And that's our question. We just, we say it all, all the time. What is wrong with us? Well, this story actually helps answer that question. In this humble awakening to our truest selves, we become aware of our own inadequacies. We know that we have to look beyond ourselves to the complete adequacy of God and then learn to choose wisely. And what does that mean? Maybe in the context of what we read, to tend well to the earth, tend well to each other, to take care of that person with the broken leg for three to six months, to tend well to our neighbors, our enemies even, and of course to our relationship with our God. In these things, we pay attention to living well now. And finally, 
even when we disobey, this may be the crux of the, the, the pinnacle of the whole story. Even when we disobey, God still finds a new way for us. When they ate the fruit, they didn't die. God didn't strike them down, but actually offered them a new way forward, just as God does for each of us today. God finding a new way forward for humanity will, of course, find its culmination in Jesus, who became, the Bible says, who became sin on our behalf in order to provide a way to eternal life with God. Amen.